Welcome to the Paragold Podcast. This is Jared Pitney, and I'm joined today by my lifelong friend and fellow pastor, Adam Breckenridge. Adam, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Jared. So good to be here. So we go way back. First time we met each other, we played baseball at Bland Park. I don't remember the name of our team, who we were sponsored by. I don't even remember if we were any good. I do remember um, you were a cut-up, so some things had never changed. Yeah, that's true. Played together, Little League Baseball, and then my dad became the pastor at Rosewood Baptist Church, and I think I was 12, and you were a member there, and uh, we got to grow up together in the same youth group, um, causing all kinds of trouble. Yeah, uh, we did. I mean, so many good memories from from our Rosewood days together. So um, some of my favorites are, do you remember how every Sunday we would get separated in Sunday school? I do. Where did you go when we get we got separated? I, I got sent to my dad's office. My dad, you know, keep in mind, he was working 45 hours a week at Monroe and trying to pastor a church. So he's like, he's got Sunday mornings to work on a sermon, and here comes his son. He's like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. Like, I just want to work on my sermon, but I'm in there and I'm in trouble again. I think you would get sent away. I specifically remember being placed in the corner. And, and I would have to turn of around. the gym? And, and no, yeah, and I would have to face the corner. Because if I was able to make eye contact with other kids, I would I would get them worked up too. What so, would we get in trouble about? It was just um, cutting up. We we would we would not pay attention, and we would not listen, and we would talk, and we would giggle, and we would make you know sounds and stuff like that. And so, yeah. Yeah, so our Sunday school teachers, uh, man, jewels in their crowns. I mean, the the the, the, the stuff they had to put up with. Yeah. Uh, made it hard on. I, I also remember um, how we sang in the choir together. On Sundays, <laughs> <laughs> we would we would robe up. Remember that, and we would we would Man. put those robes on, and we would get in. Is the, that still a thing? I Are mean, people doing that? We should bring it back. Honestly, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think so. And I, I just remember the robes would fit. They would never fit very well. No, and they were we, for grown men. They were, for, <laughs> which we were not. <laughs> we were definitely not. So, and I also remember, um, you know, uh, I remember we would sing "Holy, Holy, Holy" the hymn. Uh, almost every Sunday. Remind me how how does that go? Holy, holy, holy. Yeah, yeah. And I specifically remember uh, the part when it would get to cherubim and seraphim, oh, yeah. and we would hit the ch sound super hard, you know. And I'm not sure if it's too <laughs> sensitive, Bill, to do it into the mic. Cherubim and seraphim, and I mean it would be a thunderous thing that would happen. Uh, I do remember that. I remember there were times where it would get, we didn't realize that we were all going to come in as loud as we did, and never one of the choir would turn around and look at us and just kind of give us that, kind of that, I like, man, like, why are you guys here? Yeah, what's going on? Why are you doing this? But then we Why would, are you so immature? There, yeah. But then we would get back up the next week, and we would do it all over again. Um, <laughs> hey, but I'll share one more. I think my favorite uh, memory of all from the Rosewood days was the wrestling federation that we started. Yeah, Rosewood Championship Wrestling. RCW. RCW. Yeah. What was my name? Uh, Havoc. Havoc. Now, for the Paragold Championship Wrestling, I was Little Walter. Yes, that's different. Which, for the Paragold fans Ch- of Paragold Podcast, that's, that was the two different wrestling federations that that we started. Yeah, I actually have that VH, the, the PCW VHS tape is mm-hmm. in the room right across from us here. <laughs> you, did, did we we watch watched a little segment yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah. yeah we'd watch some I gotta of it. i got to find the VHS. I just remember player. we used the term jabroni a lot on that video. Yeah, The Rock was big, right? He was, yeah, and that was his term. So, and let me tell you something, brother. That was another thing we said a lot, which is Hulk Hogan, obviously. Yeah. So, but what was Classic. your name? What was your name at the... RCW? Uh, my, uh, RCW, I don't think I had a name. Uh, if I did, I don't remember it. But at PCW, I was considered the biased owner. That's I right. was the owner. I was 135 pounds. I wasn't going to wrestle with you. You were like guys. Jimmy Hart. Yeah, man. I would hit you in the back with chairs, yeah. and then like my, my posse would protect me. <laughs> you would so come you up, couldn't you'd get to me, trip. which made people hate me more. Oh, yeah, for sure. You were easy to hate. You played a really good bad guy. It was, it was good. Uh, uh, thank you. I, well, I mean, I mean, compliment. You did it well. I was a fall guy. So I just I just remember, <laughs> I just remember getting destroyed. Awful. awful. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to RCW wrestling, do you remember the greatest thing about RCW wrestling is that Jimmy Gore, um, for those that don't know Jimmy, we were what, 14, 15 at the time? Yeah, for Jimmy sure. was probably a sophomore in college and was still in our youth group. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so was Chris Covington, who still lives here in Paragould, I think. 
And Chris yeah. was in like seventh grade, but, but he's was bigger twice than Jimmy's size. And we would always pair up Jimmy against Chris Covington. We called him Psycho Pikes, and 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 uh, Psycho Pikes. Chris Covington was I don't know, man, but he was tw- easily twice Jimmy's size, and he easily. would just demolish this sophomore in college. Yeah, and it was hilarious. It was hilarious. And my favorite thing about it to go back to think about your dad, how hard he worked, how faithful of a man he he was and is. Um, shout out to Ron Pickney, um, changed my life. So, but he would, you know, he would work so hard all week and then he would prepare these sermons, he would preach, and then he would be standing outside. I I can remember warm summer mornings, you know, he'd be standing outside, it's lunchtime, people are filing out, he's shaking hands as people roll out, and then his son and me and, and Covington and Jimmy and all of us would be in the courtyard like Covington would have like uh, Jimmy in the in the what's the the rack? He would have him in the rack, and Jimmy'd be screaming sometimes sometimes obscenities, and it's just like, come on! He would he would shoot oh, us yeah, these yeah. looks like, dude, what are you guys doing? Dude, I remember going home with my dad, and he would walk in, and, you know, dinner or lunch is on the table, and he'd be like, "Look, son, seriously, oh. you're gonna have to stop doing this." You're Chris Covington is slamming Jimmy Gore up against the Bradford Prayer Chair. He's white. Guests are walking out. It's like, this is not acceptable. So we started wrestling behind the gym at that point. That's right. We moved it behind the gym. Yeah. Goodness. That's those, good memories, man. Yeah. Rosewood, Rosewood Baptist. Those were, those were good days. <laughs> they were good days. And so um, now we went to different schools. I went to Paragould. Uh, you were at Tech. Um, eventually, we both graduated, barely. Um, and then I went to... Um, actually, like Black River, then UCA, then ASU. You went to Williams Baptist. Um, what was that experience like for you? Well, and what was that experience like for them? Oh man, that's a big question. Well, my my time at Williams changed my life, and uh, it was a, it was a great experience, despite the fact that I tried to do everything I could to sabotage myself. As you know, I got kicked out of college. Yeah, uh, twice. Twice. What was the? F- yeah, two times. Remind me what happened the first time. So I went in, the first time was because of grades. I went in on academic probation because as you also know, me in high school, I didn't try in high school. I didn't, you know, I was just a cut up and an athlete and didn't, and not a good athlete, but, I, but I, that's where I, that's how I spent my time. You had a lot of heart though. A lot of heart. Can we talk about that? No. Oh, we'll talk about that next next time. So, no, but, you know, I didn't try. I, I went in, uh, ACT scores were low and grades were low. So I came in on academic probation, and, and I, I brought that, that same way of being, like, quote, unquote, worked for me in high school. So I tried it at, on the college level, and it just didn't work. You know, my grades were, were not up to par. I had to keep, like, a certain, you know, grade point average, and I didn't. So – they they were true to their word. They they kicked me out. They were like, "You can't come back next semester. You have you failed." So, um, yeah. And I didn't I didn't have Fs, but I had to keep you know some sort of I don't know whatever whatever the GPA was, and it was it was below that. Whatever it was, yeah, you didn't hit that goal. So I wrote a letter and said, "Can I come back?" Or or some somehow they they I think the letter I wrote after I got kicked out the second time. Anyway, I came back. Okay, I came back the next fall, and I missed the spring semester. Came back the next fall. And um, and uh, one year later, decided to get kicked out again. So this time, it was just it was for I had a I had a, a laundry list of offenses. Can you like a whole file? Me? Okay, what were some of those offenses? Well, know? some of the <laughs> some of the more infamous ones were uh, like the time we camped out on top of the admissions building, which, from what I've been told, is now a rule in the handbook. It didn't used to be a rule in the handbook, but can it you is. confirm that, Bill? Can you pull that up? Like it's a handbook online. I was supposed to read that handbook, but I never did. So I, I okay. it was it was hmm. definitely supposed to be in there. Well, okay. to, how about that, Williams? Your uh, your employee employees are not reading the handbook. Former employee. Oh, and former student. Yeah. So yeah, we camped out up there, and I remember specifically my friend Heath Powell was his his one responsibility was to set the alarm clock so we could get up. The next morning was a school day. It was like it wasn't a weekend. It was like a, t- a Tuesday. We decided to camp out on top of the admissions building, and he was supposed to set an alarm to wake us up at like four thirty five a.m. so we could bail before the faculty shows up. Well, I stand up. This is literally how it happened. It's like a, a movie moment. I stand up. The sun's already up. This is before iPhones and stuff, so none of us had watches. Nobody really knew what time it was. I'm standing up and I'm stretching. 
And all of a sudden I hear Mr. Brackenridge and I look down and it's Miss Susan Watson, who was the Dean of Students, whose son Andrew is one of our good friends who's in our church. He's also my missional community leader. Um, And she says, what are you doing on my roof? And I literally, the first thing that came out of my mouth was I told her that I was looking for my ball. So we were, I lost my balls, looking, looking, just looking for my ball. She wouldn't. No, yeah. no. So about that time, I'm like telling the other guys, like, get up, you know, wake up. And so the police come, and then the the most embarrassing, shaming part of it all was I was too scared to climb down. I climbed up, but I was too scared to climb down. So literally, Richie Jester, I put, I had to get on Richie's back. And like a monkey, and he climbed down off the building with me on his back, terrified. <laughs> so, and the police are just standing on the ground waiting for us to get. And Miss Watson with her the hands police? on her waist. Yeah, the police. The yeah, Walnut Ridge police came. Um, Was this before or after? The roadkill. Oh, uh, so the roadkill is the other. The roadkill was the straw that broke. The Can I interrupt back. for a second? Under miscellaneous rules, climbing campus buildings or trees is not allowed. Mm. There it is. Does it say anything about the milk challenge, how you can't do the milk challenge? Let me do a word search. Um, so that was another one that we got in trouble for a lot. No, it doesn't say anything. The word okay. milk's not in the... Yeah. So um, the yeah the, <laughs> the the other famous incident you're referring to was we... So we used to do this thing called dead animal hunting, where we would drive around the county roads and basically smell for animals. You would find roadkill. And we would we would grab roadkill, you know, possum, turtle, whatever it would be, and then we would go and stage it on a friend's car or porch. Like I remember one time we left a uh, a raccoon. Me, this was in high school. Justin Blackburn, Josh Lyles, John Clement. We left a we left a raccoon on John's local pharmacist Matt Rutherford. Local pharmacist Matt Rutherford was involved in much of these shenanigans. This is probably where he would like, he probably would like for us to leave it there with him. He probably would like for us to not say anything else about his involvement in anything. But we left a raccoon on somebody's porch with a sign that said, thanks for letting me crash on your front porch. I'm dead tired. Uh, Robbie the raccoon, you know. And uh, so in college, we, we, would, we would go dead animal hunting, and we, we had this thing where we would collect all these animals, and then there was an abandoned building near the airport, and we would st- store these animals behind this building. We did this for a long time and uh, let it get, you know, build up lots of animals. And you realize we, this is the kind of stuff that serial killers did when they were young. Yeah, I do uh, realize that. What do you think whenever you, <laughs> what you know? I, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, but you're you're heavily involved in the the world of counseling and therapy. If you could go back and and just try to analyze that boy, what was going on in his head? Have you ever thought about that? Like, if you could sit down and just talk to him? Oh yeah, yeah. I've t- I still I talk to him every day. Um, yeah, I think he uh, was was trying to feel alive and trying to find a safe place. And he found it in a world of comedy and friendships and shenanigans. And then he had to keep up the, keep that up. Once he got in that, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. he's got to keep it up. So and, I mean, you were a class clown and class it, favorite seventh and 12th grade year. Yeah. So that did work for you. You figured out like, it, okay, like, all right, I can, mm-hmm. I can fit in. Mm-hmm. I can get approval. But the problem was, you know, it's kind of like any other addiction, you know, it's never enough. So the pranks had to increase. Oh, they went up. The shenanigans had to increase until eventually it literally almost ruined my life. I mean, because I got kicked out of college a second time. Now I'm a college dropout and I want to marry this girl, right? I'm getting ahead of the story, but, you know, I'm not in college. The calling that I feel like God's put on my life is now like I've almost sabotaged it. Because so, at that point, you felt like you were called by God to be in ministry, right? Yeah. So at 18 years old, Jesus really broke in my life, got a hold of my heart. And, you know, because sanctification is a journey and it's a, not a quick trip and it's a process and nobody changes overnight, uh, I still had a lot of kinks and still have many kinks to work out. And so when I went to college, I still had this part of me that was trying to cope with by you know pressing into uh, my fears and trying to deal with everything that was going on inside of me by being this outrageous clown of a person. Mm. So anyway, like that that it got me in a lot of trouble. It worked until it stopped yeah. working. You know, so you get yeah, but you get kicked out the second time. And and, and well, Bill, what's the guy's name um, by the way that went to um, Adam's mamaw's funeral that was with you? Chuck Miller. 
the story that he told about, um, I think it was him, or no, it was you, I guess, that told it at the funeral, Adam. My grandma. Whenever she yeah. showed up. Mm-hmm. That was, was That's this story. Okay, so, so what happened? What happened was uh, we took all these dead animals. My friend Ryan Malone had uh, some a rock climbing like rope, like a several hundred feet long rope. We would Every few feet, we would make a noose. Uh, I'm not proud of any of this, by the way. Uh, we would make a noose, and we would slip a dead animal into the noose, and then we scaled the walls. I say we. I kept my feet on the ground of Addie May, which is the tallest structure in the Walnut Ridge Hoxie area, or at least it was at the time. It's a memorial, so essentially we desecrated a memorial. There's a weather vane on top of it. We, we climbed up there. We tied the rope to the weather vane. And so this rope of animals, dead animals, carcasses, is coming down all the way down and continues onto the courtyard. Mm. Well, uh, the next day I didn't know there was like this luncheon for all these donors, and they had to walk right past it. Mm. We had to get up there and cut it down. Several years later, by the way, I remember exactly where I was standing in Kansas City, and I get a text from Dr. Robert Foster, and, I, and it's just a zoomed-in picture of the weather vane. He, he didn't have any text. He just sent me the, a picture. And you could still see the knot was still there. We tied it. We cut it off, but we couldn't get the knot undone. So he just wanted to show me that the knot it's still there. Well, it was at this point. I don't know if it is now, but it was still on the weather vane. My grandma shows up because I'm going to get kicked out of college. She thinks you're a saint. Oh, my gosh. She shows up and she she schedules a meeting with Miss Watson. She goes into Miss Watson's office and she tells Miss Watson, "You don't understand. You've made a huge mistake. <laughs> you got the wrong guy." Yeah, and my grandson's a man, a young man of God, and he's you know, and all this, and um, you, you've got the wrong person. And Miss Watson just so patiently listens to all of my you know grandmother's uh, de- defense of me, and then I'm waiting out in the lobby, nervous, anxious. Miss Watson comes out and says, um, "Hey." Uh, Adam, I think you need to come in here, and I think you have some <laughs> things you need to t- share with your grandmother. I think you, I think it's time for you to tell her the truth. And so I, I proceeded to tell my grandma everything that happened in front of Miss Watson, and then Miss Watson, or my grandma, her response was she just looked at Miss Watson and said, uh, "Tell me how much money I owe you." That's what she said. Um, and so <laughs> she thinking was, she could buy off Miss Watson. Oh, Williams, like if I just pay this, it's all yeah. gonna be good. It was a, it was a it was a healthy dose of shame that I felt. It was mm-hmm. a, it was a good type of like, what am I doing here? Because Doctor Gore eventually kind of set you down and be like, look, man, eventually everyone's gonna be laughing at you. That's right. So what happened was because Williams men, I mean, you know, gracious, they're, they were so gracious to me. So I set out another semester or two. I wrote a letter and and had to come before this board, some sort of academic disciplinary board, and I had to meet with all of them and. They let me come back again, and Dr. Foster set me down. Dr. Gore set me down as well, but Dr. Foster set me down and said, hey, look, you know, God's ha- God has his hand on your life. He's gifted you. He's called you, uh, and you're, you're doing everything you can to sabotage that. And he said, you're going to take every class I teach, including Greek. And I was like, I don't even know English. He was like, well, you're going to take Greek, which became like an obsession for me. It was really a, a gift. Um, and he did say, you know, eventually people are going to be laughing at you, not laughing with you. Your life is not trending in the right direction. You're, it's not. So truly, um, and I've told him this, but like those guys were sent by God. They were mentors. They, they, they discipled me. They changed my life. And so from that point on, I wasn't perfect, but I did for the next two years carry a 4.0 at mm-hmm. Williams. And I didn't get, uh, I did get some parking tickets. That's a whole other story. But I didn't get any. I didn't get any disciplinary write-ups or anything. So yeah. I, I managed to kind of keep my nose clean a little bit and grow up just a little bit more. Sure. You know. So, so eventually, yeah. you graduate from Williams. You get married. You move to Kansas City to go to Midwestern Seminary. And while there, um, you join a church, mm-hmm. and you very quickly. Um, yeah, become, a, I guess, an elder there, mm-hmm. and you go on staff full-time. And things went really well. How long were you in Kansas City oh, working? I was in Kansas City for a little over 10 years. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you kind of mm-hmm. grew up there. Mm-hmm. You had your kid. You know, mm-hmm. you had three kids, three girls mm-hmm. while you were there. And um, things went well. You were a teaching pastor, large church. But then you kind of hit this wall, um, and things begin to unravel a little bit. So tell me – a little bit about that. Yes. Somewhere around 2014, 2015, I started having these panic attacks. I was having increasing anxiety. And on the surface, I, everything looked okay. You know, I was getting promoted at work. 
I had a growing family, a new house, church was growing. But beneath the surface, I was uh, starting to come apart. Things were getting harder. It was getting harder and harder for me to manage that as well. And so eventually I just hit this wall. I remember, I mean, you've heard the story, but I remember coming up from my study at home. We had a basement and I, I had an office down there and I came up. I'd been working. It was a Saturday and I was, I'd worked all day on a sermon on a Saturday on top of the, of the rest of the work week. Like, right. I'd worked on a Saturday all day. So you're working basically seven days a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I came up from my study and I just, my wife said, I just didn't look like Adam. I, and, and we grew up together. She knows me. And she, you know, she, she just said, it just didn't, it wasn't you. And she literally said something that's haunted me. She said, if something doesn't change, you're not going to make it to 40. And at, that was a, I mean, you, you hear about people having a wake up call. That was like another God punching me in the stomach moment of like, wait, you know, wake up, you know, knocking me, knocking me down. And so I came to our elders and I told them that something was wrong and they were like, uh, yeah, we know. So, <laughs> you know, cause that stuff starts to leak out and sure. the people around you, there's, they're picking up on like, something's not okay here. And so, um, I ended up taking three months out of the pulpit. I, I still was a full-time pastor and had a workload and, and all that, but I wasn't preaching. And most of my anxiety was, for whatever reason, manifesting around preaching. And it was just a ton of pressure on my soul. And so I took three months without preaching, and I just gave me some space to work on my soul and pray and invite Jesus into whatever was going on with me. And through that, I came under the care of you know Rich Plass and Jim Cofield, and uh, Cross Point Ministries, and Carrie and I did a three or four day intensive with them that um, did not, we didn't leave there fixed, but we did leave changed. I remember Rich saying, this is day one of the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Like when you start to see this kind of stuff, and, and this is, it, you can't go back. This is day one of the rest of your life. So we left, we left changed. Yeah, yeah you left with the right tools. I mean, that's, yeah. that's one of the ways I know we've talked about it before is, Sometimes when you go into marriage or you go into adult life, you know, if you think about it as a garden, it's like some people basically have been given a stick because of their family background, you know, because of what they experienced maybe as a child. It's like, here's your stick. Now, like, go, like, cultivate this garden. Yeah. And, yeah, you leave something like this intensive that you've left. And me and Megan have done the same thing. It's Mm -hmm. like, okay, like you said, like, now the garden is not, like, all of a sudden now flourishing and we're good for the rest of our lives, but at least we've got the tools we, we got the information yep. we need to kind of move forward. That's so, the best way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So you go through with that. What do you think, um, looking back, and, and you don't have to share this if you don't want to. I know we've talked about it before, but what, whenever you left that intensive, kind of what was the diagnosis of like, hey, here's here's what's going on. Like, here's why the panic attacks are happening. Um, hmm. What was, was that kind of, unco- that was kind of uncovered during that time. Do you mind? Uh, it was. It was what I what I saw some dots that were connected, and you know, Rich and Jim are so good at not declaring, but helping you discover. So they just asked questions. They were guides. They led us to see what the Spirit was trying to show us. We truly believe that the Spirit of God was, was showing us this. So the connections were, and you've heard me talk about this, by the way. If anybody's listening, it took me. It it, it still took me a while to sort of develop this and and, and see all the how all these dots connect. I, I, but um, basically, uh, I just, I was just switching hats, you know, I was, just, so, uh, to survive, I learned to be, the, we, we called it the jester. It was kind of this part of me that tried to manage the anxiety that I carried as a kid. That was the class clown. Class clown. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, um, you know, I, I, that stopped working. It actually started to sabotage me. So in God's grace, uh, I found a new way. And, and, um, and it was the scholar, you know, I mean, it was just, I became a student. I mean, you heard me reference earlier. Okay. Now I got a 4.0 and that's, it's a better coping mechanism for sure. You know, uh, it didn't get me. It doesn't involve dead animals. It doesn't involve dead animals. Yeah. Uh, or camping on top of buildings, puking off buildings. Um, so, you know, then, uh, I became the pastor, you know, so when I got to Kansas city, and started pastoring. I threw myself into that all the way. And um, essentially what Rich and Jim helped me discover was, you know, Jim Cofield has this brilliant line. It's, it's in the Relational Soul, in one of the chapters he wrote, but he says, the false self doesn't care what horse it rides. Hmm. It doesn't care. Hmm. So, you know, everybody has this false self, this, this survival self, this self-protective part of you that you're presenting to the world 
it's how you push into the world. It's how you've learned to survive. Well, I was just changing horses, basically. Same underlying stuff never got addressed, basically. So on the, on the, above the surface, you saw Adam as a class clown. You saw Adam as very studious, and you saw Adam as a great pastor. But beneath the surface, there were mass layers of me that were untouched and unaffected by Jesus and untouched and unseen by me, too. Like, I wasn't aware. I didn't have awareness. So the, the, one of the biggest takeaways from this journey with Rich and Jim was awareness. And awareness won't change you, but, but it's part of change because you can't change what you're not aware of. So you can't change your mind about what you don't know about. And, and repentance means to change your mind, right, to transform. You can't repent of what you're not aware of. So it was this huge moment of awareness of like, oh, my goodness, this is what I've been doing my whole life. And the underlying stuff was not being addressed. So once I sort of relaxed those coping mechanisms, uh, the stuff that was inside began to come to the surface, which manifested in lots of tears and emotion, grief, uh, but, in, but in a healthy way, you know, and, and healing. There was, a, there was a healing that, be, that began to happen, a journey of healing. So, that, yeah. Yeah, that's, well, yeah it, that's exactly what I was wondering. You know, we've um, referenced a book a lot here. Uh, at the crossing charge, uh, the body keeps the score. Mm. And, mm. you know, for those listening, I'd love to hear you maybe just touch on a little bit, Adam, about um, just this reality of whenever we're young, you know, we can outrun our problems, so to speak, right? And, mm-hmm. and we can push them down. So we've got the energy to do that. But eventually, kind of what you're talking about mm-hmm. and is we get to a place where it's like we don't have the energy to do that anymore and stuff begins to kind of catch up to us mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that's what you're talking about that's right? it yeah it's like trying it's like trying to push a push a beach ball beneath the water it's just going to keep popping back up and eventually you're going to wear out and you're going to get tired of pushing it down and you're you're going to have to face it which is our biggest fear it's extremely vulnerable it's it's every, our whole system has been organized to keep that beach ball beneath the surface so um, we call it, sometimes we call it a midlife crisis, you know, or we, 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 we say we feel like we're falling apart, but it happens as adults. And the way Rich helped frame it for me was that's God's mercy to you. You know, that's actually God's kindness to you. He's stripping some things away from you. This is growing up. This is maturing in Christ. This is, you know, so, um, but you're right. You know, uh, your, your body does, you're, we're like sponges, you know permeable souls we hold pain we hold wounds we hold memories Mm -hmm. implicit memory and we live our lives trying to um, mitigate that trying to keep that like we said press beneath the surface and that takes a lot of internal and external energy to do that Mm -hmm. and eventually that stuff catches up with you yeah yeah so that's around the time that we kind of started connecting again because um, we had just sent out Rusty Langford, who was a pastor on our staff. We sent him out to plant a church in uh, Cleveland, Tennessee. And so we were looking to fill a role here. I reached out to you, mm-hmm. I think probably a month before you maybe met with Rich mm-hmm. and them. And you were like, hey, let me pray about it, think about it. But we didn't talk after that for a while. But then... Well, well you're being kind. For, I shady. I was shady. <laughs> you know when Christians say, I'll pray about it? And it's like, yeah, I'm, that's a, that's a very Christian ease way of like stiff nope. arming. Yeah, yeah, nope. And the reason was because I was terrified. I, I was in this place of like, I don't know what's happening with me, and I didn't want to tell you that because I was too sh- ashamed sure. to tell you what was actually happening with me. So I was still protecting. You yeah, know? absolutely. So, yeah. You're trying to figure out what's going on, and so then you go meet with Rich, and I'll actually, I re- I remember Adam. I think I was in the back parking lot of this building, whatever you called me. We were remodeling at the time. And um, you called and basically said, like, hey, is that position still open in Paragould? And so, um, yeah, we that eventually led us into kind of this hiring process mm-hmm. where you came on staff. And I, if I remember correctly, basically, like, that came out of, like, you were sitting with Rich in the marriage intensive, you and Carrie. Yep. And wasn't he like, hey, do you have any other opportunities? Yeah. And you're like, yeah, actually, um, one of my best friends, yeah. pastors of church, and has offered a job back in my hometown. And Rich was like, go for it. Yeah, he literally said, what are you doing? Go home. Yeah, so you did. I did. Yeah, so you came back, and um, you've been, I guess, what's that, five years ago? Uh-huh. So for five years, um, you've basically been serving in what role – here at the crossing, uh, yeah. So um, 
shepherding, which would include, you know, all, all things, membership, care, counseling stuff. And, and then as we've grown, I've, I've tried to help take on some of those executive kind of operation day to day stuff and keep that, keep the ball, keep all systems afloat sort of, so to speak. So that's been the, the main, and then getting to teach with you and right lead worship and yeah, stuff like you've that. You've done a great so, job, but I do remember before coming back, you're like, look, if I if I come back to Paragold, I'm gonna have to go apologize to some people first because uh, yeah. I, I, I wreaked havoc on on some different people in different ways uh, whenever mm-hmm. I lived there. And so one of the first meetings I remember you having is you went to connect with the administration at Green County Tech. Uh, do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah. Well, first I'll say this: um, I was I was afraid to come back home because of my reputation, and I. I um, I remember that verse in Acts nine where Saul, who became Paul, had just been converted. Jesus had just gotten a hold of his heart, and now he's preaching the gospel. And you have this group of Jews that see him preaching the gospel, and they're like, "Wait a minute, isn't that the man that wreaked havoc in Jerusalem?" And if you remember my first sermon I preached oh, yeah. um, here, we were in Jonah, and I was talking about you know the prophet who's running from God, and which is I mean in a sense everybody's story, but it certainly is mine, and. Um, I, I threw that verse on the screen and I said, I know, because I, I had former like school teachers and uh, stuff like that in our congregation, people that knew me. And I just said, uh, I know some of you see me now as a pastor and you see me up here preaching God's word and preaching the gospel. And some of you are like, wait a minute, isn't that the man who wreaked havoc yeah. in Paragould? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, you know, and I said, you know, the only difference between that Adam and this Adam is, is Jesus. I'm the same guy really at the core, uh, except he's changing my core. So, so, yeah, you know, um, one more thing on that. I remember Ryan Mason said that he was in the um, school teacher's lounge. He was in the teacher's lounge. And I won't name the name of the teacher, but it was one of my former coaches and teachers. And Ryan said, hey, we, we're hiring, we just hired a new pastor, and I think he used to be one of your students, one of your players. And this guy said, really, who was it? And Ryan said, Adam Breckenridge. And he said, without missing a beat, you have to be kidding me. Except <laughs> he did not use the word kidding. <laughs> so to get back to your story, um, I did uh, reach out to Mike Todd, who is one of my former coaches. And I just, uh, I tried to, I was trying to schedule one-on-one lunches with all these guys. And I reached out to him and he said, you know what? We're having this big Thanksgiving lunch with all the teachers. Like a lot of them are going to be there. And so he said, why don't you just come up and have lunch with us? And so I came up, I went to his office, got there early and went to his office and sat down. He wanted to catch up for a minute, hear how we've been, welcome us back. He's always been, he's another been a mentor to me. I wrote him a handwritten letter several years ago in Kansas City and sent it to him, just telling him that he made a huge difference in my life. Mm-hmm. But um, so he eventually gets around to, he's like, so did you do it or did you not do it? Talking about what? Well, okay. So very infamous, not a, not a proud moment. Um, but when I was a junior in high school, last day of school, m- myself and a couple other guys, I'll leave them out of this. Uh, but it's so, yeah, well, anyway, I'll leave them out of this if you're listening. You so and, you and Jared, go you ahead. know yeah. who you are. You know exactly. Yeah, I was at Paragold, man. Don't, yeah. don't put this on me. By the way, <laughs> what the story you're about to tell, Bill, what's funny is that that night after this happened, I asked Adam, I was like, did you do this? Yeah. And he's like, dude, I swear, I swear. man. I swear like my on, the, on the Bible. Yeah, oh, I did yeah. not do this. So, but anyway, oh, you did yeah. it. And what was, what it. was it? Well, it was... I t- we took um, Epicac syrup, which makes you vomit involuntarily. It's like, you know, if a child eats poison or something, you're, you're supposed to give them this syrup. Sure. And they, it they can might, be helpful. can be helpful. And they just they throw up. We used to slip it in each other's Cokes and stuff, like like for, for pranks, for fun, you know, on each other. We got the idea of, I wonder if we could put this in the teacher's tea pitchers at school. And so we began to do our research, and we discovered that the lunch ladies would set the tea pitchers out 10 minutes before the lunch bell rings and they would go back in the lunchroom and finish prep, which by the way, we had a Green County Tech lunch lady visit here not too long ago, if you remember, and we told her that story and she said, she she said, I was there and she said, we still do that. We put them out 10 minutes before. But she asked you, remember, she was like, tell me how you did it. Yeah, she said, yep. So tell me how. So, um, Good grief. So we, um, all of us said, you know, we told our teachers like, Hey, we got to go to the bathroom. We all met in the hall and we went to the, uh, lunchroom and there the tea pictures were nobody's around, no cameras at this point, you know, back in the day, this is 2000. 
And we grabbed the tea pitchers. There's a bathroom right there. We took them in the bathroom and we dumped Epicac syrup. And, it's and awful. Lots of Epicac. It was terrible. I mean, you know, it was awful. I'm 38. If I could get a hold of some 16 year old. Yeah, like now that you're oh. like, you're, if your like wife was a teacher, you should oh like submit that to your wife. These guys are just working their tails off yeah. all day, every day. And some these punks, you know, so. So then, then, then we go back to class, and then the lunch bell rings. We go to lunch, and we're watching uh, the teachers just pound this sweet tea. The next period, uh, someone comes to the uh, someone comes to the my class that I was in, and they said Adam is wanted in the principal's office. Well, I knew immediately what it was, so I went to the principal's you're office. Scared to death, man. Oh, you had to be terrified. I walked in the, at that point where you like I've got to start thinking before I act. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> probably should have been <laughs> thinking that, but I walked in and it was the principal. It was my football coach at the time, Gene Weeks, who's now the superintendent. And, um, and, and they said, uh, Hey, we, we know that if you didn't do it, you know, who did it and you were most likely behind it. So tell us, that's a lot about your reputation. Yeah, it does. Tell us what happened. And, you know, in fear, I just, man, I just lied. You know, I just told them I didn't know what they were talking about. And um, then then for years, we just had to keep this covered up. I remember it was on the uh, it was the top story that night. On the, So, by the way, school let out the period after lunch because so many teachers were sick that school got canceled. And I had freshmen walking up to me in the in the hallways, like high fiving me. And I was like, please don't please don't like look at me. Um. Anyway, uh, my getaway, by the way, I, my car back then was a 1989 Dodge Ram full-size family van. You remember that? Yeah, I remember, remember that, that van? Before, yeah, before your before grandparents I had my, bought you the new truck. My, my truck, yeah. My getaway was I pulled out on the 412 heading east to go back home to Center Valley Drive, my neighborhood, and I ran out of gas as soon as my fr- front two wheels hit 412. As soon as I pulled <laughs> out on the 412, I ran out of gas. And what I a co- day. What a day. Coasted into a parking lot across from Green County Tech West Campus and just sat there and had a friend come and get, put some gas in my car. So um, we we lied, we 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 protected, we covered up, and um, years. You know, oh, this has haunted me. True, honestly, especially after you know a couple of years later, I come to faith, and I, you know, uh, and I think I just tried to push that away. Like, I don't need to address. I don't have to go back and ask for forgiveness. It's too painful. It's too vulnerable. Um, I, I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna continue to let them think I didn't, or you know, lie. So I didn't mm-hmm. do it. So, but over the years, this really pestered me. And, um, and then coming back home, I knew I. I, 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 I wanted to face it, and I wanted to. I mean, the truest part of me wanted to go back and say I'm sorry. And so. That brings us to the lunchroom with Coach Todd. Mike Todd brings me to uh, – I'm in his office. He says, did you do it or did you not do it? And I said, well – Is he alone in the room? Yes. I said, um, I did. And he said, well, I was pretty sure you did, but I wanted to think believe that you didn't. And we sort of had a laugh. And then I, m- I remember his grace that he spoke over me because he said, listen, man, if I – was held accountable for the stunts I pulled at 16. You know, if, if I was if I was if, if I was identified or defined by the stuff I did at 16, then I would be in trouble. And that was healing. That felt you know I needed to hear that. Um, felt like that was God's grace to me. And so, but then uh, they had some fun with it. So that he he uh, he got a text message and he was like, "It's time." So we stood up. And we walked to this room, this big room. It wasn't a cafeteria, but it was this big room. They had this whole huge Thanksgiving spread. When I walk in the room, there's Gene Weeks, superintendent. There's Scott Garrish, assistant superintendent, who's also one of my football coaches. And there's some uniformed Paragold police officers, Paragold's finest in there. And I walk in with Mike Todd, and Gene Weeks looks at me, and he says, Mr. Breckenridge. Turn around, hands behind your back. You're under arrest. <laughs> he said that Coach Todd had radioed ahead and told him I confessed. So, you know, I immediately start chuckling, and I think, you know, they're about to have some fun with me, but I'm still nervous. Yeah, you're like, like what, what are they, they going to They could probably arrest me. Yeah, I'm like, what's the statute of limitations? I don't know. What's going to happen? What's about to happen? So then, he, you know, I sort of stand there sort of paralyzed. So he says it again, hands behind your back. You're under arrest. Turn around. So I started to go with it. I started to turn around slowly, put my hands behind my back. These officers start approaching me. Well, then Scott Garrish grabs me and spins me around, and he says, we're just joking with you. 
why don't you go fix yourself a plate? I'll pour you a glass of tea. <laughs> and then he winks. That's classic, man. So then I end up sitting down, having lunch with these guys, all these teachers, and, you know, um, they were all so kind. They were, they really, they were all so kind and so gracious. And I, I just, you know, told them that I was sorry. And I am, you know, I, if I could go back and inter, and intercept that, that child before he did something like that. And we laugh about it, but you know, it's just, it's, uh, <laughs> it's nothing about it's okay. You know, yeah, it's yeah. not okay. So, um, but they, they were, they were super gracious. I know that was healing for your soul. And it's, you know, <laughs> what was it like? probably four or five months after you came back. I mean, the thing about you, Adam, is like if you, if you still catch you in the right spot, like you, you enjoy a good prank. Oh, now yeah. you're not, you don't want anybody to get injured. That's right. You've, yeah. Jesus has kind of helped weed that out of you. But um, do you remember the, 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 uh, what was, what are we calling the tin, tinfoil man? The tinfoil man. That was right after we got back. That was pretty close. Like probably so four or five it, months. They, it was that big eclipse. Right. Yeah, that's it was right. a big yeah, yeah. eclipse. Like it's going to only happens once, you know. Do you know about this bill? So I remember we were in an elder meeting and we started to brainstorm like the ball gets rolling quick with us, right? Yeah. Like it gets rolling and we were like, oh my gosh, we should dress Adam up as this robot or something and put him on the corner uh, at McDonald's because people sometimes stand there with signs, right? Kind, yeah, of, yeah. kind of apocalyptic type yeah, signs. Yeah, the corner of 49 and 412. Exactly. And so we were like, we should have him stand there and, and just like preach about the eclipse. <laughs> it's at the end of the times because everybody was so... yeah. Which, by the way, what does that say about our elder meetings? It's like, <laughs> I'm going to assume that I'm going to assume the best that it was at the end of the meeting after we had it was. done a lot of great spiritual work. It was, and it also assumes that we we know how to have fun and play in the sprinkler, which is an inside joke. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I remember we te- I remember we texted Kenny Ford. Yeah. And we said, Kenny, you know, at that just, time, Kenny was one of the older members in our church. Yeah. We're such yeah. a young church. We're like, let's call one of the oldest people we know. He's a yeah. businessman here in town. He's respected. Yeah, super him. old, like 50 years, 49 <laughs> or 50 years old. He's such an old man. Yeah. 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 So we called him. We're like, Kenny, is this, is this out of line? We yeah. Wanna, should we do this? And he yeah. said, absolutely, you should. So I remember uh, you, we had to act fast. Yeah, you ran to the dollar store. Yeah, yeah. right. Dollar General. Yeah, and you bought all the gear: tin foil, tin foil. some goggles. Yeah, swimming goggles. And I remember and it was like hundred and twenty degrees that day. <laughs> it was so hot, and I stood out there in in raw denim jeans, wrapped in tin foil. And your beard wrapped. Like, My beard yeah. was wrapped. We don't want to reveal your identity. Yeah, and I, well, you made a tin foil hat for me, and then goggles. And, uh, and then I had no sunscreen. So like I was just exposed. (laughs) And then I had these signs that said things like the eclipse will kill you (laughs) run for your life. And, uh, what were some of the things I I proclaimed? Man, doomsday stuff. Yeah. It was just terrible stuff. Yeah. Like I can't run for your lives. I said the eclipse was a solar monster. Yeah. It was going to eat you. We recorded it. And then I remember yeah. a police officer pulled up mm. and I thought like, okay, here, here we, we go. go. Like we should here not we have hired Adam. Like we're all yeah. going to get in trouble, which he was yeah. just like, thought it was hilarious. Yeah. And Kenny and Beth Ford were there watching it happen. Yeah. People were recording. The video went viral. It did. It had did. thousands upon thousands of views. Yeah, it did. Um, so we can still get you in that space if we need to. Yeah. But a little bit more redeemed version. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. You've been back now five years, uh, serving on staff here and, um, but recently have, have felt a call uh, to transition off our staff and to move full-time um, working for your Enneagram coach. Um, still be serving here as an advocational elder living in Paragould, but serving uh, now on that team. And I want to learn a little bit about, hear about kind of what you'll be doing for the your Enneagram coach. But um, for those who maybe have not heard of the Enneagram, mm-hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about it? Because those who have heard about it usually have pretty strong feelings. It's like either you love the Enneagram and you think it's like yeah. one of the greatest things or you hate it and you're like, man, look at that symbol. Like it even looks demonic. Like how can anybody, mm-hmm. you know, you know, participate in something like the Enneagram? So what exactly is the Enneagram? Very good. So um, literally if you break down the, the, it's a Greek word. If you break it down, it, it just means nine points. And it basically represents nine interconnected relational styles it's it's basically getting at how people relate and the motivations that drive how they relate so um you know i like to think about the you know in, as a church we just we like to talk about the enneagram as a tool it's 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 there's no uh i'll say this just to be very clear to all of our listeners um there's there's no power in in the tool 
the power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is, is the power of God to save. Um, it's, how you, it's how you get into the faith. It's how you grow up in the faith is by continuing to uh, believe, embody, apply, live out the gospel, you know, the good news of who Jesus is for you. And um, so the Enneagram, the reason why it's so effective is it can be a tool for the gospel. Um, and the way I like to think about it is there are several different ways you could go out and dig in your yard. You could, you could dig with a shovel. You could dig with a garden hole. You could dig with a, you could take and drive an excavator out there and dig like huge chunks. You could even take a spoon out in your yard and dig if you want. There's a lot of different ways to dig, a lot of different tools that will help you. This is one of them. It's not the only one. It's not the, you know, it's, it's not something to build your whole life on. It's just a helpful tool. Um, but helpful is the, is the, is the key word. It's very helpful. And what's helpful about it is it's one of the most effective tools we found at getting the gospel of Jesus down into your inner person. You know, Paul, Paul talks in, in Ephesians 3 about how you have this inner being. He prays that you'd be strengthened in your inner being. And then he prays that you would have a, a knowledge of Jesus that is intimate, not just intellectual. Like you'd, he, he prays that you would know Jesus in a way that surpasses knowledge. It does this little word play. Basically, what, if you look at it from a neuroscience perspective, he's saying, hey, I want the gospel to make it from, from your left brain into your right brain, like into your experience. I want you to experience not just the facts about Jesus, but the person of Jesus himself who lives in you by faith, Paul says. And so I think the Enneagram is just one helpful tool at getting the, the presence of Christ, help, helping like open the door to your inner life, you know, your motivations, longings, desires, wounds, emotions. Those are the processes driving us, and, and uh, that's the stuff we can't see. Yeah. I, did, I, yeah, I don't want to put you on the spot, but there's nine types. Can you... Mm-hmm. Remember what those nine types are. Well, I hope I can. So maybe give just like a brief mm-hmm. word on each of them. Yeah, and each one, by the way, have uh, particular gifts that they bring to relationships, and each one has particular barriers they bring to relationships. And so type one is the good person um, who images God through their passion for justice, righteousness, good things. Type one's the or type two is the loving person, uh, helpful person. They all have different 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 Enneagram teachers call them different things. Right. Type three is the effective person, or sometimes you see that's the achiever, just represents the excellencies of God. Um, type four, uh, sometimes you see that as the individualist, um, but uh, very empathic, the yeah. strong sense of empathy and connected to the feelings of others. Value, authenticity. Values, authenticity, creative. Sometimes it's called the creative person. Mm-hmm. Um, type five, often called the wise person, uh, sort of manifests the wisdom and knowledge of God. Um Type six, which is what what I identify as, uh, is the loyalist or the loyal person, sometimes the faithful person, um, sometimes you see it's the guardian. Uh, type seven, the joyful person, which is uh, typically like embodies the mood of the gospel, like they just feel like good news. Uh, very Sometimes they're called the optimist. Um, type eight, the powerful person, um, represents kind of the strength. Yeah, or uh, the of, challenger. Sometimes called the challenger, yes. They, they basically... Uh, you know, experience the world as coming against them, and they 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 push back, push against the world, and um, so which is obviously needed. And then so top nine, which is my wife, is the peaceful person. Um, so represents kind of the peace peace of God. So and of course we don't have to get into all the each one has particular vulnerabilities, you know, particular weaknesses. Um, yeah, that, that might be good. Go ahead. Yeah. We can. Well, so uh, type one, you know, if they're if they're in an unhealthy spot, can be you know judgment. By the way, all this is true of all people. So, the, but but each one of these types have particular vulnerabilities, right? Mm-hmm. So, type one can have a particular vulnerability towards self criticism and judgment. Uh, type two can can kind of have a need to be needed, can come become codependent, or uh, they can find their identity and they're helping. Yeah, they come uh, across as incredibly loving, but if yeah. they're unhealthy. Like mm-hmm. they're doing nice things for you, so mm-hmm. that you will really appreciate them. Mm-hmm. Right? Type three has a you know which as where you identify mm-hmm. as. I mean, you could speak about this better than I can from experience, but there can be this sense of am I love for who I am or my love for what I do, and mm-hmm. so you can get into this performance based identity sort of trying to achieve and accomplish to get very image conscious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Image if conscious. you're not going to be successful, at least look successful. Yeah. Yeah. Type four, um, uh, the, the individualist, um, can, can kind of, uh, you know, 
sort of believe this narrative of am I am I unique enough? Something's missing in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, they they sort of can have this envy of what other people have. They they look into other people's life and think they have something I don't have. Something's mm-hmm. missing. Something's wrong with me. They can even find safety in melancholy, right? They can they actually mm-hmm. enjoy. Mm-hmm. They feel safer in sadness than they mm-hmm. do in even gladness. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, type five, uh, is typically the most introverted type. And so, um, the, the wise person can, uh, sort of have this sort of their kind of besetting sin is, you know, avarice, or they can be stingy with themselves. They can, they can have thicker walls and and taller walls than other people and sort of withhold of them, be withholding of themselves. Type six, I could go on and on about, but sort of the besetting sin is anxiety. And the, the coping mechanism is uh, I'm going to worry, prepare, over-prepare, overthink, figure it out, um, which has a huge effect on relationships, mm-hmm. obviously. Um, type 7 uh, can, um, can, you know, sort of the question they're always asking is what's next. Yeah. And if and their besetting sin, we say, is gluttony. Yeah, it can be the most addictive, right, yeah. of all the personalities. Mm-hmm. Gluttony in the sense of gobbling up experiences, yeah. g- which is that addictive Pursue type Pursue pleasure mm-hmm. at all costs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Type 8, um, the strong person, the powerful person, um, sort of uh, besetting sin, we say, is, is lust. And you don't just think about that in terms of sexually, but really it's more of a thirst for control. Like for, let's, you know, there there's a lot of tenderness and vulnerability beneath the surface of an eight, and they're trying to manage and protect that, so they're trying to get control of their environment. Um, and then for top nine, we say the besetting sin is sloth. And don't think about work ethic necessarily, but re- relationally lazy in the sense of they can kind of check out. Yeah. And stop engaging, stop pursuing, and shut down can be their coping mechanism. So, yeah, is is yeah. it true that people are more born uh, with that type, or that it's made? Oh man, I mean, I know it's probably a, yeah. So depends on who you ask. It does, and so there is that whole nature nurture argument, you know. And so I've heard different enneagram t- people say from womb to tomb. You're born a type, and you remain that type, and you can grow within that, and grow in the in the other. You can grow. Um, in in uh, in the other types, like in the other numbers, like I could, you know, I could become healthier in my two ness or two energy or whatever, but I'm never going to become a two. So I, I mean, you know, I think we come hardwired by God with a certain disposition, certain um, personality, certain gift set, and probably even some some particular vulnerabilities. But also, we come with genetics. You know, we come into the world like. Um, sponges that are formed and shaped. We know that all the spiritual formation stuff we talk sure. about humans are formed and we're formed by our earliest relationships and the environment we, we grow up in. And, and you do have a learned way of being a learned way of coping. Yeah. So are they that's somewhat, the nurture piece. And are the personalities somewhat even in this, I'm probably not going to say this right. I should have to correct it, but almost like, um, there are ways, they're almost like there are ways that we learn how to, um, receive love, yep. receive like, cause like the one thing that every child comes out of, like we're, we're trying to survive. Right. Mm-hmm. And the way that we survive is by not being rejected. Correct. Mm-hmm. Like if a parent mm-hmm. rejects a child, like a child's going to die. And so mm-hmm. we never really grow out of that. Right. Like there's just, so there's a part yeah. of us. It's like always, whether we realize it or not, like we're just trying not to be rejected. And so personalities are kind of ways that we learn how to make it through the world without dying yes. by being rejected. Yes. Is that fair yeah. enough to say? Fair enough to say, and utterly biblical. So that's the whole thing the gospel's aimed at is connection. You think about we're we're created for connection and communion with God. When we sin, what happens? Well, we become disconnected. We become disconnected from God. We become disconnected from creation. Now creation's turning on us. Uh, we become disconnected from ourselves. So now we're hiding, covering, blaming. Um, and so the the whole you know, reason why Jesus came, Peter says, is to bring us back to God. Or Paul's favorite term for the gospel is it's the message of reconciliation or reconnection. So Jesus comes to reconnect us to God and to be the God man that brings God and man back together in union. And so even the gospel, even, you know, the Bible would say we're, we're relational souls created in the image of a relational God. It's all about relationship. The gospel's aiming at that. That's why we need to be forgiven. Is not just so that we can, like, be, you know, God's okay with us now, but we need to be forgiven so that we can like be accepted into his presence, have a close relationship with him, experience his love uh, and love him back because he first loved us. So yes, that continues into adulthood. We never grow out of that abandonment or being disconnected 
is the is the core I would say underlying like fear of, of every every type everybody mm-hmm. yeah and that's one of the reasons I love the Enneagram um, and obviously loves is a strong word but one of the reasons I prefer the Enneagram over say DISC or Myers Briggs mm-hmm. or Strength Finders because Enneagram specifically is about how you relate to God others and yourself and based off of how your parents really related to you. And so that's been super helpful for me, just even in my marriage and in my own friendships and how I work with staff here is realizing that I tend to relate to people through that top three kind of worldview, mm-hmm. um, which is very much can be performance-driven, achiever-driven, task-oriented, because I really believe that so much of my self-worth mm-hmm. and my acceptance is tied to my performance and therefore mm-hmm. the performance of those around me because the performance yeah. of those around me perfects or affects my performance. Yes. And so I need others. I really need others to succeed because if you succeed, I succeed Mm -hmm. and then we all survive. So that's helpful to have that. If um, there's so much more we could talk about, we'll have to have you on sometime to talk even more about the Enneagram. But for those who are listening, um, who do you think should take the Enneagram? Like maybe if they're wondering, like, should I take this? Like, who is this for and where can they go to find the test and maybe even kind of a third question is like, are there any books? I know there's a ton of books out there. What's like a good kind of introductory book they could read. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you know, I encourage, we encourage every, everybody to take it. I mean, it's, it's, it can't hurt. I've never had a single, so by the way, it's not science, it's not empirical, but I've never had, and I don't think you've ever had someone who's taken it and who's, been you know discovered a type their type and then read about it and the proof hasn't been in the pudding where yeah. it's like usually oh. they read it and they're just like laughing like oh, oh this has nailed me yeah so I do think by the way and I know I know we agree on this that like um God God you know God in the scriptures God can speak through donkeys like <laughs> he can deliver truth through creation creation speaks speaks to us and reveals truth about God I totally believe that God can take a personality theory like the enneagram and he can actually speak speak and tell you what's true about you. Um, and so there's truth in it. And wh- I remember the first time I took it was R- Rich. When I went and did that intensive with Rich, he made me take it. And I was t- so skeptical about it. And and I, I took it and found out I was a six. And the reason I'm skeptical is because I'm a six. And uh, that's the reason I was anxious about it. And when I, when I began to read about myself, the best way I can explain what it felt like, the best way, was that I was walking in Psalm 139. Like, mm-hmm. you, you read Psalm 139, but I felt like I was inside it, and I felt like it was inside me, and I felt like the Holy Spirit was searching me and knowing me. And it was incredibly vulnerable and exposing and embarrassing and and beautiful mm-hmm. all at the same time. So if you're if you're um, if you want to grow in self-clarity— for the purpose of relating better, like if, if you want to know what the like to, to quote Jim Cofield, like the relational gears, the the sand that's getting into your relational gears, that's jamming up your relationship with Jesus and with others, uh, and with yourself, then take it. I mean, it can't. I don't think it can hurt. Um, and uh, you know, people are, are nervous about morbid introspection, but here's the thing: um, if you don't actually look within and deal with that stuff, it's going to control your life anyway. Yeah, it's going to deal with you. It's going to deal with you. That's the best way to put it. It's going to control you. So I would lay any fear of morbid introspection aside and just for every look within, take 10 looks at Jesus, the old Robert Murray McShane, you know. And Jesus is within, by the way, lives within you. So every all that stuff you're looking at within, Jesus is there. He already saw it. He sees it. And so now it's almost like he's inviting you into it for for you know a healing journey, a deeper journey. So I would say if you want to grow, um, take it. It can't hurt. Uh, it's not the center of your life. It's a tool. It's a helpful tool. So a couple different places you can go to take it. Um, your EnneagramCoach.com has a free assessment that's really good. Uh, the Wagner Enneagram test is $10. That's the one that, you know, um, I've given to most people. Uh, it's the one I took originally. Yeah. What's the web address? The web address for, uh, yeah, yourenneagramcoach.com. And then the Wagner test is uh, W-E-P-S-S dot com. And I, I think that stands for, yeah, I don't remember, Wagner Enneagram uh, something scale. I don't remember what W-E-P-S-S yeah. stands for. And the for. good thing about that test, I don't know about, I haven't taken the one on your Enneagram coach, but I know um, the Wagner test, it gives you a list of the resourceful versus non-resourceful. Yep. 
numbers under all tops, which is um, incredibly helpful. Yeah, kind of shows you all the different nuances. Like how there's nobody who's just like, bam, like everyone's a one and all ones act like this. Like that's there, right. There's a lot of that's different right. nuances to it. So mm-hmm. that's helpful with the Wagner test. Super helpful. Um, and then my, some of my favorite books have been um, A.J. Sherrill's book, Enneagram and the Way of Jesus, is really, really helpful. Um, Marilyn Vansell's book, Self to Lose, Self to Find, is brilliant. And it's just a, a biblical approach to the Enneagram. And, um, and then Jeff and Beth McCord have a book called Becoming Us. Uh, the subtitle is Using the Enneagram to Create a Thriving Gospel-Centered Marriage. And so for if you're married and you want to dig into the way like, you know, how does a type, how does a type nine and a mm-hmm. type six, what are the pitfalls that they fall into? And then what are the ways that they are really good for each other and really bless each other? So um, that book really kind of fleshes all that out. Um, so, yeah. Oh, a couple of websites, by the way. The Enneagram Institute is really helpful. Mm-hmm. So that's... It really, also talks about the types, right? Has like a, has it pairs a com- them together. Mm-hmm. Compatibility... Uh, page that shows you how every type connects with other types. Really helpful stuff. Rizzo and Hudson are um, just, yeah, really good. Their stuff's really good. And then the um, there's a course you can take um, at your Enneagram coach. Uh, there's a course called Discovering You that's really, really, really helpful as well. So um, lots of options. And there's a ton of books. Okay, let me say one more thing about this. You know, just, just in the same way that not every person on TV or on the internet preaching about Jesus is legit <laughs> and you should just hook line and sinker take oh, yeah. what they say like that's why you need everybody needs pastors that can pastor them and guard the doctrine lead feed guide and protect hey don't listen to these kind of teachers that's true of the enneagram that's true of a lot of anything but like just any any instagram or account i recently learned that enneagram's blowing up on tiktok i don't have tiktok i don't even know what tiktok is but Whatever you're seeing on TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or YouTube about the Enneagram, um, yeah, you know, I, I wouldn't listen to just any of it. I would, I would start with the resources I just named because they're the ones that are, are safe and legit and help, most helpful. And then it's like anything else. You can get into some – you can go off the reservation and get into some quacky stuff, you know. Yeah, for sure. Well, tell us a little bit, a little bit before – we sign off um, about what you're going to be doing as you step into your new role yeah. with uh, your Enneagram coach. Yeah, so I'm, I'm stepping in as uh, director of coaching. So um, my job will be to work with pastors and um, uh, mental health professionals mostly to do for them what they're trying to do for others and to equip them and how to use the Enneagram in their relationships, on their teams, and in their practices and in their ministries as one tool that helps us get beneath the surface and experience the deep transformation that Jesus invites us into. And I'll be working with them. Um, lots of engaging with the, with those coaches. Um, YEC has, um, has, a, 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 an arm called BEC becoming an Enneagram coach. And so it's really helpful. You can take, you can take their program, take their course and they will actually launch you. They'll, la- they'll help you launch your own coaching. The last, the last um, like segment of the course, the last several sessions are basically all around building your platform, building your business, launching your coaching practice, and they will actually help you launch a gospel-centered coaching practice that uses the Enneagram and trains you in how to coach people. Even like Beth McCord's brilliant, she even gives you like, here's you know your first five sessions in sheets that you have with people. Um, and so, and part of the work that, uh, I'll be doing on the team is developing other resources for coaches on like, what do you, what do you do when you're on session 42 with someone, you know, um, which would be helpful for me to, to create because I don't know either the answer to that. So, um, and so doing, doing lots of engaging with coaches, um, under the becoming an Enneagram coach wing and, uh, of the organization and then just some content creation and, and stuff like that. So, um, that's, that's in a nutshell. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. there's so much more we could talk about. And, you know, I've told you this before, but I wanted to just be on recording that I'm proud of you. Uh, mm-hmm. Thankful for your work. It's been a, a joy to be able to um, yeah, work alongside, I mean, a, a best friend, you mm-hmm. know, for the last five years. That's been a dream and um, super sad that you're rolling off our staff here, but glad you're still going to be uh, in uh, Paragould and still serving as a non-vocational elder and, uh Man, yeah, just excited to see what God 
continues to do uh, in you and through you in this next mm. season of your life. Mm. So thanks so much for, yeah. for all you've done here and for, for coming on the podcast to talk a little bit about it. I hope you uh, frame the um, autographed premiere <laughs> magazine with my face on the cover. I, I told you guys, I promise you it will never leave my coffee table and I will, I will punish, uh, I will, I will overcorrect my children if they try to touch it. That's what yeah. I like. That's what I like That's to hear. That's what you like to hear. Absolutely. I love you, man. This is a, it's a bittersweet thing for me and my family to roll off the staff. And I told our members this and I'll say it again on record, but I have loved being on this staff and I have been on several different staffs and, uh, have never been on a team as gifted as godly and as fun as this one. Mm. And, um, and bro, that's like your influence and your leadership, you know, and, uh, and I've grown, I, I truly can say, and my wife would amen, amen, amen this, that I'm a different man, different person because of you and because of this team and, um, love Jesus more and have mm-hmm. experienced his love more because of the, the ways you guys have loved me. So, um, mm-hmm. I'm so thankful for all of that. And, um, I'm, I'm thankful to continue to pastor with you and serve with you. And I'm going to say this again online on, on the podcast. Cause I threw it out there at the, at the member meeting, but maybe someday I'll come crawling back <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say, can I, do you need a maintenance guy or like, do you, what do you, can, what, what can I do to, to help Jared? Yeah. Uh, no, but I'll, I, I do want to be helpful and I do want to continue to see us run after the vision and mission God's given us here, you know, and I'm, I'm excited to do, to do that with you. Oh, thanks, man. It's a great compliment. Thank you so much again for your time. And to those of you who are listening, as always, um, you can check us out at uh, paragoldpodcast.com. You can find us on uh, social media, Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram. And if you're not on our email list, be sure and subscribe to that. Until next time.